Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Hello everyone. Um, Welcome to this panel this afternoon titled From Child Q to the Manchester 10 police violence against kids. Um, I'm actually quite nervous. This is only maybe the third public speaking, um, hosting, facilitating um, thing that I've done. Um, I haven't done many this year, so I'm a bit bit rusty, so please just give me some time. Thank you for the applause, I feel better now. Right, so... um, yeah, welcome to this panel. My name is Chantal Lewis, and I am one of the co-founders and co-hosts of Surviving Society podcast, which is a podcast focused on the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. Um, today on the panel, I am joined by Hilary Moore, who is a political educator and writer from the US. She is author of Beyond Policing and Burning Earth, Changing Europe. Um, then we have Roxy Lagarde, who is the director of Kids of Colour, a steering group member of the Northern Police Monitoring Project, and PhD student at Manchester Metropolitan University. But it's really hard not to do like whoop whoop after everyone, because I know all the work that you guys do, and it's so amazing. Um, Lara Bay is a recovering teacher and organiser with No More Exclusions, and the Coalition of Anti-Racist Educators. Um, and Jan Cunliffe, who is actually next to me, is co-founder of the campaign group Jenga, Joint Enterprise, Not Guilty by Association, and now campaigning for acquittals, wrongly convicted, and achieving further legal reform. Um, so today, um, I'm genuinely so excited and nervous to be chairing this panel because I look up to and am inspired by so many um, of these women and the work um, that they're engaged with, and in particular, what I think this panel gives us an opportunity to do together is imagine um, abolitionist futures. Um, So the ambition of this panel is very much embedded in collaboration, knowledge production, and myth-busting. So our aim is to create a space for audience members um, to learn something new about how inequality is constructed around us by key civil society institutions, i.e. the police. For this panel, we are, of course, going to be discussing how the criminal justice system links to schools and young people and their experiences of racist harm, violence, and neglect. Um, So we're going to work through some questions. Um, So, beginning, Zara. Um, Please, um, Zara, can you tell us a bit about your work and organising and specifically which organisation you campaign with and their aims and objectives? So probably a bit that NME would help. Okay, so thanks very much. Can we, like, clap? I did a podcast, the two, no, three, oh, okay, a few podcasts with you, but the first one was so, it was so important, and also your producer, your executive producer is here, and Tissot, as, as a trio, right, so because of Surviving Society, I think that um, 
enemy got support from some key people quite early on. And I want to just, I just want to commend the work that you do. Uh, oh, for no, very, 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 and if you haven't listened to Surviving Society, I don't know where you live or what you've been doing. So I talk about your work. <laughs> okay. I'm not a stupid podcast. So, <laughs> so the question is, but the question is, who do we organise with? So more no more exclusion started off literally at my kitchen table in 2018, just as I was going through three crises. Since then, I've lost count of the crises, obviously that have converged and multiplied the harm and you know the, the mess and chaos in our lives but at that particular time I was going through redundancy from my teaching job at people referral unit in East London and if you don't know what people referral unit is because you might be from another country <laughs> it is a place where children who are majority disabled neurodiverse working class poor a black brown a few white kids scattered around in that space too um, go who have either been permanently excluded expelled uh, disposed of uh, from the education system, or they've, they've, they've been told they're at risk of exclusion. And they could be there for six weeks to, to endless as a placement. So I was being made redundant through there, and uh, that was the first crisis that was kind of converging in 2018. And then I think being the trade union rep and organizing the workforce against the redundancy may have had something to do with me losing my job, but you know, that's another story for another day. And then the second thing that was going on at the time, I was finishing my master's at the Institute of Education and Social Justice in Education and looking at school exclusion through a critical lens for the first time. So I had been, a, by that time, I had been a teacher for 18 years and I knew for I just want to say that again to every teacher and educator in the room and the space. Um, and that without that master's program, without critical race theory, without discrete, without critical lenses, I would still be doing the white savior work, even as a black woman, right? That a lot of educators, they're doing. And perpetrating it, so much harm. So after the redundancy, I was like, what do I do? Do I get another teaching job and do another 20 years of this? But now my eyes are open. So I just felt like I could just go into another classroom and try to do, I'm not saying that's not important work, because Bell Hooks does tell us that, you know, the classroom is, is the place for liberation. But I just felt like I had done that as an educator and I wanted to affect change at systemic level. So I gathered around some of the people in this room. Can you put your hand up? Elaine is there and Kadeem is there. Yeah, and we literally got some, you know, you're not gonna be a teacher if you don't have sugar paper. So we got sugar paper out, pens, and we started to just draft shit out. Like, what do we want? What are objectives gonna be? We didn't really know much about abolition, but we just knew that we didn't want reform, we didn't want piecemeal. So that's how NME came about. And, and soon after, we did the podcast, and thanks to you, other people found out about us. Um, in terms of who do we work with coalitionally, we always knew we weren't gonna make any changes unless we worked with others across difference. Like, that was really important. So we knew we wanted to focus on the black child and that history, the educationally subnormal history that Bernard Cole talked about way back in 1971. If you haven't read that book, please read it. It's still really relevant. It was republished last year for the 50th anniversary. Um, and everything that's in that 50-page book, hand on heart, still valid today, 51 years later, right? That is a terrible uh, indictment on this country, on the education system, on the trade union movement, um, on anyone who cares about education, really, right? So, um, I think I've done my intro. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> and just to finish off to say that coalitionally, 
a lot of people that we work with are here at this table. Uh, and I just want to mention a couple that are not, if that's all right. So no. Forefront, <clears throat> Forefront Project, please, I want to pick them up. I want to pick up Just Education Matters because they are in the room. Joan is there, Auntie Joan, and Esther and Annette, who are amazing lawyers and advocates for black children, right? And they are our heart in enemy. Um, <laughs> I want to pick up um, the, the Black Supplementary Saturday School Movement. Phoenix education, more education. These are, these are historically spaces of, of resistance and revolution, right, for the, the black child. And also, I want to big up uh, Katrina French and Unjust. That's all right. Thank you so much, Lara. Great way to kick off. Yeah, sure. So please, yeah, tell us about your work. Make it different. Mm -hmm. Okay, hi, everybody. My name is Hillary. I use she and her pronouns. Um, if you can't tell already, I'm from the States. I live on Osage, Cherokee, and Shawnee territory, unceded French colonial territory, um, also known as Louisville, Kentucky. So I'm in the middle that people fly over. It's also a red state. Um, and why that's important is because I organize white people around abolition and capitalism, anti-capitalism. So I'm part of an organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice, and we do community-based organizing, so we knock on doors and we build a strong base, and we organize our folks around issues of abolition and anti-capitalism. And when I say our folks, I mean poor and working class white folks who live rurally, who often have disabilities, who are often queer, who uh, have a stake in overthrowing the system, and who have been trained to punch sideways versus punching up. Does that make sense? Yeah, a common enemy versus f fighting each other for scraps. And so that's our work, and we build a large organization. We are one of the largest organizations in the U.S. that's doing this, organizing white folks around racial justice and specifically abolition and anti-capitalism. Um, and we do this because there was a call put out more than 55 years ago by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, if you can indicate, if you kind of know that organization, Wiggle or something. Okay, a civil rights organization that had very strong black liberation tendencies running through it, including Stokely Carmichael. And there was a call put out to white folks of go organize your own fucking people. Stop coming into our organization. Stop trying to take over or tell us what our tactics should or should not be. Go organize where racism persists, where racism solidifies, where racism expands, and that's in white communities. And it's taken a long ass time for people in the States to then like understand what that call meant and put it into action. And so 55 years later, there's been multiple attempts to organize white people. And dare I say, we're the largest in this moment. And this is a very high stakes moment, yeah? US fascism uh, fed by neoliberalism. So our stakes are really high. Just a couple of things I'll say around some of our abolition work. Um, we never work alone. We work with our folks who are also incarcerated, poor and working class white folks who have experienced the system and know what their stake is in ending it. And so some of that work has been um, stopping a jail in LA. We've been part of some jail fights out there. So a jail has been stopped. Some transformative community-led police accountability commission in Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, which you know we'll see how it goes, but this is theoretically the most transformative option that we've had in the whole US so far. Um, in my home city, we are ending cash bail, which is or working to bring more poor working class white folks to end cash bail, which is the idea. If you get arrested, 
whether or not you've had your trial, you are held in jail until your trial happens. Folks with money, get out. You can go home and do your life until your trial comes. If you don't have money, you sit in jail. And already in my home, in, in the Louisville jails, 11 people have died this year just because it's so fucking atrocious. Um, and not to, not last but not least, but there's a few more. Um, our organization was very much in part of confronting Unite the Right uh, rally in Charlottesville. So there's many different fronts to fight white supremacy. There's many different institutions. There's many different cultural shifts that we need to do. But today I'm here on this fucking fantastic panel to talk about white people and what our stake is in bringing down these systems that impact all of us very differently, but we all have something to gain by having a common enemy. Wow. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> Hi everyone, and it's nice to be here today. I'm similarly echo the um, the joy at being here on with such great people on this panel. Um, so I run a project called Kids of Colour. Um, it was set up in Manchester in 2018, early on, very much just to explore race and identity and culture with young people of colour specifically and it was nothing more than just some videos on YouTube with me and a shaky camera not actually very good at video making at all but it very much started off like that but of course exploring race and identity you can't avoid racism and the experiences of racism that young people of colour are experiencing um, and as the project developed it became something much bigger than that and I guess the things that were much more needed, they start to be built within the organisation as well. So there's kind of, there's a couple of streams. We do do youth work, and that is a big part of what we do in terms of trying to explore race and identity with young people, and also, thank you, um, bring joy to young people's lives and get them to truly love who they are as black and brown young people. That is a significant part of our work. But I guess more kind of relevant into what we're talking about today, Advocacy and campaigning is a significant part of our work as well. So when we're talking to young people, every day we come across issues of institutional racism within education, within the police force in Manchester, um, and we advocate for those young people. Some of those things will be in small, less distinct ways in terms of going to school, meetings with them, being an appropriate adult in police stations, various things, but we also campaign on a larger level as well. So. Some may have heard about a campaign called No Police in Schools, which is a campaign that we started, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about those things a bit more later. Um, but that's one of, our, one of our key campaigns that we started with Northern Police Monitoring Project, that I'm also a steering group member of, who work to challenge police violence, harassment and racism, uh, predominantly by Greater Manchester Police in Manchester. Um, and we also, we've, Recently, what we've kind of, I guess, been more publicly known for in the advocacy space is supporting 10 boys who recently went to prison in Manchester. Um, the majority of those 10 for harms that they didn't commit. Um, Jan's going to talk about joint enterprise, but this looked very similar, but this was a conspiracy case. Um, and 10 young black boys under the guise of a gang label that was created by the prosecution um, have gone to prison collectively for 131 years. So we also work to amplify those stories and those cases as well as 
support those boys and various young people through those processes, but simultaneously, of course, trying to encourage community to think about alternatives, whether that is alternatives to police and schools as part of our campaign, or um, alternative ways to challenge prosecution and sentencing in terms of the boys. Um, so we do a lot of that abolitionist thinking as well, quite naturally, through the work. Um, and love to collaborate with many of those here on this panel and beyond as well. So I'm sure we'll come on to discuss that more. I'll pass over to Chad. really because in 2007 19 children were uh, charged with murder the greater trial and one of them was convicted of murder even though the trial process to me showed me that he hadn't murdered anyone so that was the first time i'd ever heard of joint enterprise uh, i went home i googled it i went to the library i looked you know in legal books didn't exist it was you know it's a legal doctrine it's not actually legislation so it's a it's a, it's a dirty secret that's been hidden from all of us for a very long time um, we launched in 2010 and we launched in Liverpool because we thought it would be the most progressive city to launch a campaign like ours because we, you know, we, we are supporting people who are in prison convicted of murder and, and it's a hard campaign because you have to convince people that the people you support are not murderers and most people in this country can't believe that a person who hasn't killed anyone will go to prison for life for murder. Um, when we talk about collaborations, um, for us as a campaign, collaborations was a no-no because one, people didn't want to come anywhere near us, and secondly, the ones that did wanted to break us as a campaign. So part of being broken by other organisations told us that we were obviously right in what we were doing because you don't want to break something that's, uh, that, that, that isn't any good in the first place. They were trying to break us because we were, we were right. Um, in 2016, we were vindicated by the Supreme Court when one of our cases um, was deemed as um, a miscarriage of justice. And so Amin Jogi had his, had his murder conviction acquitted. And during that process, the five senior judges in the land said that the law had taken a wrong turn back in 1984. So 32 years of injustice. And throughout those 32 years of injustice, our campaign alone has 1,400 people, and I'm talking men, women, and children. Children as young as 12 years old serving life sentences for murder that the trial process proved they didn't commit. So, as in, did anyone ever hear of Joint Enterprise before 2007? Have you heard of it now? But the only reason you've heard of it now is because of this campaign. Because up until that point, like I said, I went. library I went I googled it and the only thing I could find on joint enterprise were hip replacement surgeons I couldn't find anything about the law I spoke to our lawyers I spoke to lots of people if I spoke to a lawyer or a QC they would raise their eyes and go oh it's just so complicated it's not complicated if you haven't murdered anyone you don't go to prison for murder. So for me, it's about abolition. We have to abolish, it's, it's not in legislation. We don't want it in legislation. We want it gone. There are lots of different laws in this country 
that can be used to prosecute people. So if someone's commit, committed violent disorder or a fray or GBH, take them to court for that. Don't take them to court for the murder that someone else has committed um, because we are just putting children, women, with, ch with their own children and we're putting very young men and mainly black and ethnic minorities. This is, a, this is a law that is used to sweep up young men in inner city areas where they can remove a whole generation of young black men. And I just think that's like ethnic cleansing because you take away the young men, you take away the opportunities for the young women as well. Who are they gonna marry? Who are they gonna have families with? And it completely decimates an entire community. Thank you. They were incredible, and Jan in particular, thank you so much. I still remember speaking with um, your friend and collaborator, um, Gloria, about what Jengra actually actually does and campaigns for, and I had no idea about the particulars of joint enterprise, and it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, but yeah, anyway, just on that note, and moving forward on for this conversation. Um, so we've got different kind of contexts and um, locational contexts on this panel and I wondered if we could talk a little bit about, I mean Hilary you've been talking to us about the US context, but kind of the particulars of location and um, Roxy I know you can talk about Manchester, um, Zara I know you can probably talk, you can talk about regionally as well but also about London and Jan could you could talk a little bit about some of the particulars of the, the locations that Jane works in because Obviously, we know that so much of the politics of these issues that we're campaigning around are that there's so much similarity, but sometimes in the difference, we can create much more understandings of the particulars, if that, if that makes sense. Sorry, I'm getting a bit academic -y here, but hopefully the, the, the answers will, will help. But does anyone want to, want to start? Hilary, can I get you to start on the US? Since the I feel super honored to be on this panel. These are fantastic people that I'm even learning from in this moment, so just more clapping, can we call for discussion? <laughs> All right, I feel like the flow of cultural hegemony means you probably know a lot about where I come from, yeah. so I'm not gonna do a lot of explaining. Uh, what I wanna speak to more is like, what living in empire, whether you are from an internal colony or you are just a white person who's poor and working class, like how you get shaped and where you see things. And I'm gonna talk about our organizing strategy because I think we don't, we usually end panels with like, what do we do? And I wanna start with, what do we do? Um, so first and foremost, I wanna say that most of the energy, the engine, the creativity from my experience and what I see around abolition in the US is coming from young people and is coming from black youth. And so it's not surprising to me then that there's multiple mechanisms to incarcerate, to control, and to contain those folks, right? Um, and so one experience that I just wanna throw out in terms of like that level of leadership, in particular, there's an organization called BYP 100, Black Youth Project 100, who has multiple chapters across the US they are fucking lighting shit on fire in particular. And what I mean by that is like they're inspiring my people, like poor working class white people in rural Kentucky. And uh, in Atlanta, they stopped a jail and they had this whole framing around however much money was gonna go into that stupid ass jail, 
what could we do with it? And what, what would actually meet our needs in this moment, right? Like the whole jobs argument can eat shit. But what do we actually do in terms of like, what do we need? And so they won in Atlanta, hell yeah. And then what happened is that a lot of, what happened is that that lit fires across the country, including in my state. And what happened was that there was a coalition of organizers in Eastern Kentucky. So in Kentucky, there's Appalachian Mountains. It's been a divested region for a long time. It's generally assumed to be the racist area, the poor area, that's where the racists live, those poor white folks, when actually, right, you've been disinvested in lots of ways, you can create some stereotypes, no problem. I also saw like the Irish and the British Empire presentation, I was like, oh hey, that shit's just Appalachia. So interesting how empire works. Anyways, they created a program from BYP's inspiration that was like, um, our 444 million, they were trying to put a federal prison on top of mountaintop removal site. And so they did this whole media campaign that was like, okay, 444 million from the federal government, what can we do with that in our region? And they did a hashtag, they did podcasts, they did letters, they made this whole narrative of what would be possible, getting regular ass people to talk about, oh my God, if we had that much money, what would be possible? And the creativity, the inspiration, just like lit on fire. There's a lot in glossing over. That prison was never built. So that's, I think, an important part of reimagining what could be possible. And that's so integral to abolition. Foxy. Yeah, um, so I will talk about Manchester, um, and particularly Greater Manchester Police. Um, microphones really give away a lot, don't they? Like, do you want me to do this Thank you. Um, uh, when we talk about policing in England, um, we talk a lot about the London Met. And policing generally is obviously a horrific function of our society, but we often focus on the London Met as particularly horrific. And they are, right? That's indisputable. Like, I think of Chris Carver's family, and we cannot ignore the atrocities and the fatalities caused by the London Met. But I think that often makes people forget about police forces outside of London, right? Um, Greater Manchester Police are one of those police forces that I want to talk about that are, you know, equally as dangerous and need focus on. And, and actually what some lawyers have said to me is that because focus is often on the London Met, actually these police forces around um, kind of England, Wales just run run riot and do whatever they want, right? Um, so, great, I'll talk about three kind of concerning elements of policing in Manchester at the moment that particularly affect uh, racialized young people. Um, so we set up the No Police in Schools campaign in uh, 2020 after Kids of Colour and Northern Police Monitoring Project. We started to hear increasing kind of discussions on the ground, young people talking about police in their schools in quite a normalised way. And we also know that police in schools is not actually anything new, but we were hearing these discussions more. We did a freedom of information request to Greater Manchester Police where we found out that there was a plan to put 20 more police in schools in the academic year 2020 to 2021. Now, lots of people outside of Manchester, I often see those kind of aligned with Labour Party uh, organising, are like, can't wait for the potential of Andy Burnham as leader, right? <laughs> we need to knock that one on the head, because <laughs> it makes me... 
being very, very frustrating. The only thing that man has left for me is the fact that I think he has quite nice eyelashes. That's all I've got at this point. So these kind of implementations of police and schools were fully supported by Andy Burnham, okay? So it's under the guise of pastoral support for an under-resourced education system, uh, mental health support for young people, uh, all of these kind of, kind of soft supportive things, um, but also of course kind of utilising uh, youth violence to say that actually we need police and schools to stop knife crime, which doesn't at all align with what is happening in schools or what is needed in schools. So we found out that 20 more police officers were going into Greater Manchester schools in 2020. Uh, so we set up the No Police in Schools campaign, uh, one of our first events was actually with you when we were talking about how we challenged the school to prison pipeline in 20, it was the start of 2020, we had an event very close to COVID. That's oh, actually a bit concerning yeah. when I think people weren't really aware that it was going to be a pandemic. Um, but what that campaign looked like is MPs, people like that were saying to us that actually, um, well, we haven't heard that it's a problem, so there's no evidence for it's a problem. And obviously our response to that is we've got tons and tons and tons of evidence that policing is a problem. But now you're asking us to prove that specifically police in schools is going to be a problem. I mean, connect the dots, but fine, we'll respond. So we did a survey in Manchester, of Greater Manchester residents, 554 people in terms of their, to kind of gather their reflections on the existence of police officers in schools, as well as their thoughts about it if they had no experience of it, um, which is the report here, which you can grab if you haven't seen it already, called Decriminalise the Classroom. The biggest consultation on police in schools um, in, in England, absolutely. And what we saw through that report, that report was what many of us expected to see right so we saw that actually the p policing in schools is racist it's disproportionately impacting black and brown young people from the stories told through this report it's stigmatizing so people from outside the school will think oh well, that's a bad school because it has police officers in but also the kids will internalize that criminalization of young people a swift movement of young people from the education system into the criminal justice system um, police dealing with minor behavioral issues making them criminal matters like oh you have an afro comb that's a bladed article let's kind of send you to the pupil referral unit and also quite concerningly for young uh, black and brown girls a real sexualized policing which of course we would have seen in stories such as child cues um, but police officers enforcing, and often women police officers in schools, uh, kind of saying, actually I'm not going to say what they say, but really horrific kind of uh, sexist remarks to young girls in schools. So that is all in here, right? And that was um, a report that came out in August 2020. Um, we've been organising a lot with people from the National Education Union. Uh, we had three boroughs of Manchester in the NEU pass a motion for no police in schools. We also got lots of other uh, organisations, such as some of those here, uh, and unions to kind of pass those motions as well. By 2021, if I, my timeline is right, I haven't actually talked about this campaign in a while, uh, Manchester City Council came out and said that they would be pulling police officers out of schools. And that they would be... <laughs> Right, but also I think it's key to conversations of abolition later, which is if we don't build the alternatives, just kind of pulling something out like that isn't necessarily going to work. So they said that they would 
pull those out, but actually they would kind of replace them with this community policing option, right? Uh, which can cause the exact same problems in terms of quite terrifying multi-agency work that's happening in Manchester and no doubt in other cities. So we have a problem with police and schools. They try to rebrand, rebrand, rebrand. When we did this report, they were called schools-based police officers. They're now called school engagement officers. They rename them something different every month to try and you know, make it difficult to organize against. But that is a, set, uh, a feature of policing that is particularly scary for young people of colour right now in Manchester. Um, we also, Greater Manchester Police, are responsible for a significant amount of fatalities after police pursuits in England, okay? Um, so between Northern Police Monitoring Project and other family campaigns, we are trying to organise against police pursuits, which specifically disproportionately impact young racialized boys, okay? And also Gypsy Roma Traveller young people. Um, between September 2020 and the eight months that followed, Greater Manchester Police killed eight pe young people, predominantly young people, following police pursuit. Um, it's scary, um, and I'd just like to, uh, there are family members of one young person uh, in the room right now, so I just want to say love to you and all of your organising as well, because family campaigns, when they come together with other organising groups, can re be really important and powerful, and I hope that we do work to abolish police pursuits, because they are killing our young people. Um, but things like the new police crime courts and sentencing bill uh, give police more and more power in those cars. You know, they make it more difficult. They, they make a driver of a police car uh, held to a different account to just us on the road and our driving, right? So it's just more and more power given to those. So we're seeing a, a scary increasing number of fatalities after police pursuit in Manchester, with Greater Manchester Police being responsible for a significant number of those. And finally, I say a third concern in Manchester right now is gangs policing. And we talk about the matrix in London, and there's been a lot of work done on, on the gangs matrix in London, which is fantastic, but no one is scrutinizing Excalibur in Manchester, who are the gangs kind of task force there. In November 2020, uh, Greater Manchester Police had this big reveal in the Manchester Evening News that was like, we've created a youth watch list, and it was uh, like an article celebrating this youth watch list about how it's gonna, you know, Zara touched on risk, how it's gonna create this, uh, manage risk in young people based on exclusions, based on whether they've been in care, based on educational level, and create this gangs database, essentially. Gangs policing, and I say gangs like this, is a terrifying, growing prospect for our young people. Manchester just spent 2.5 million on a super court to specifically prosecute gangs. That money could have gone into the community. We're gonna talk about abolition later. The things that could have been spent on, right, could have been exciting, beautiful, hopeful, but instead they're, they're spent on a super court where I just spent you know, over three months in court with 10 boys who were all sent to prison under the idea that they were a gang. A gang construct based on the music they like, their cultural interests, the fact that they knew each other, things that essentially were really racist traits within this courtroom and they were swiftly put under this gang label and all of them were found guilty on conspiracy to murder and conspiracy to GBH despite the fact that no one was murdered and only one boy harmed someone um, and some of those boys now face eight years just for sending text messages um, and that is like enabled in these super courts right which uh, you know everyone's 
really excited about them because it enables us to prosecute high numbers of people at the same time. And those people are, are always mostly going to be young black boys, really, uh, in reality. Um, they all tie in, you know, it ties into police and schools. Teachers walk around all the time saying, oh, the black kids are like look like a gang today, don't they? You know, the, all of these things flow into each other. A lot of, within the boys' case in Manchester, a lot of their education and mishaps, exclusions, whatever in education, were brought into that courtroom. Teachers' statements when incidents at school would happen were used as evidence, despite the fact they were never cross-examined by police officers. <coughs> so they were all kind of working together in gangs policing. Um, I feel like I've rambled a bit, but there's like a lot of different concerning elements of policing by Greater Manchester Police right now. That are, while we do scrutinise and we do try and hold accountable, work with lawyers, challenge, um, there isn't much of a lens on them necessarily outside of our, our locality. So what I'd say is, when you're learning about policing and the harms of policing, yeah, look at the London Met because they are terrifying. And then look at how it's replicated elsewhere and, and the unique harms that are going on in different areas. Um, yeah. Right, so a lot of um, things that Roxy's talked about there. Um, first of all, when you talk about the 10 uh, conspiracy boys in Manchester, they were charged with conspiracy, but the legal doctrine of joint enterprise is what convicted them. So um, in my son's case and in many of the cases that, that, that we support, it's, they're charged with murder, but it's the joint enterprise principle that can fix them. They're not, you know, it's not murder with intent or anything like that. It's that simple phrase that is used to convict them. Uh, so that's why if we abolish joint enterprise, all this other stuff doesn't need to happen. Um, we've got the police in schools, we've got the gang court in Manchester. The gang court isn't a gang court, it's a joint enterprise court. That's it, full stop. It's about swooping the kids up that they've already got names of because they've been targeting them since they were probably 10 years old. Um, they put them on a list, and then if something happens, if a crime happens, rather than take the person that commits that crime to court and risk maybe getting them not guilty because they haven't got enough evidence, they would rather swoop in all of their friends, call them a gang, and need absolutely no evidence whatsoever. And when I say no evidence, like Roxy said, a text message your taste in music, whether we like drill music or rap, doesn't really matter. No one should go to prison because of that. Um, and it hasn't just started and it hasn't um, just developed over the last few years. This has been going on for at least 20 years and it's been going on hidden because nobody knew what joint enterprise was. Nobody knew how tenuous the evidence was in these cases. And because they've got away with it for, for so long, um, it's almost carte blanche, they can use it on anything and anyone. And the big worry that we should all be having is, okay, it's mainly used in, in murder, um, murder cases or manslaughter cases, that, that's the, they're mainly the people that we support. But we're watching it trickle down now to, to GBH or assault uh, or conspiracy to a crime that never happened in the first place. You know, what about the right to protest? What if we go out and we protest and, and you know, something happens to someone and you're with that person? You're gonna be facing 10 years in prison. Do you think it's gonna be evidence on what you did 
that puts you in prison is going to be the legal doctrine of joint enterprise because they don't have to prove you did anything. Only have to prove that you were there at the scene. And okay, you might think mere presence at the scene is not enough to convict. Yes, it is, because your presence at the scene will be interpreted by a prosecutor and a judge as encouragement. So you can be sat there doing nothing, but you're just, just because you're there, that is deemed as encouragement. There's also foresight, which is used, that you should have or may have or possibly could have foreseen what another person might do, not what they will do, because there is no plan, what they might do. And if, if a prosecutor can convince the jury that you might have foreseen something, we can all foresee something, it doesn't mean we, we have the intent, then you're going to prison. And m many of our cases, um, they're in prison because a jury believed that they possibly foresaw something, that they possibly foresaw what someone else might do. A person who had no plan, a, a, a case of spontaneous violence with no plan, no thought out process that this is what I'm going to do. Very often in our cases, it's a drug deal gone wrong. And when I say drug deal, I'm talking about weed, kids going picking up weed and one, one kid steals it off another and the next thing you know, there's a fight. That's not a planned murder. <clears throat> and the people in the room and the people with them certainly don't deserve to go to prison for that. Um, and, and, and the other thing that we need to remember as well is this current government wants to open and build at least six brand new super mega prisons. Now, how are you gonna get the bodies to put into these super mega prisons? Well, you start by going into schools and looking for them, targeting them, finding a crime and then convicting them all of joint enterprise. It's a money-making racket and it's our money. Like we've said, it's our money. Put it into our communities. And the gang court in uh, Manchester cost them three million pounds. You know, three million pounds. What, what could that have done? to some of the urban areas of Manchester, to some of the deprived areas. It could have done a huge amount. These boys that are now serving eight years in prison for a conspiracy, for a crime that never happened, send them to university, buy them a house, buy them a car. got a house to live in and they've got a job and they've got prospects but they don't want us to have any of that because it's it, it's all about controlling us and making us all feel bad and feel scared and, and like you said we're punching sideways instead of punching upwards um, I heard a lady give a speech about 10 years ago a lady called Janet Alder um, I, I could cry when I just think about her her brother was murdered by the police in, in Yorkshire um, and, and, and the CCTV footage of the police while, he, while he's lay on the floor with his trousers around his ankles while they make monkey noises. They took it, they took the police to court. This was a joint enterprise, they killed him. It's there on camera, but not one of them, not one of them was even found guilty of manslaughter. His teeth were found in his own stomach. You know, how does this happen? Why do they get away with it? Yet our children who commit no crime are getting life sentences when the cops are killing people and it's there on footage and they don't spend a day in prison. It's a disgrace. But Janet Alter said to me, who prosecutes the prosecutors? Because there are prosecutors, why do they prosecute the police? But do it in such a way that they don't have to, don't have to be found guilty, but yet they prosecute us. 
You know, they think it's okay to put 15-year-olds in a concrete box for the rest of their lives. 15-year-olds that didn't murder anyone. 18-year-olds who didn't murder anyone. Women who didn't murder anyone. Men who didn't murder anyone. A lifetime in a concrete box. It's okay for prosecutors to do that to people in the full knowledge that they know they haven't committed a crime. So who prosecutes these prosecutors? What do we do? Because they deserve to go to prison for doing this to our loved ones. I support people who have already killed themselves in their prison cells because, well, I support their families, I can't support them anymore. They've killed themselves because they can't face another minute in prison, not being believed, not knowing when they're gonna get out, not knowing if there'll be an opportunity to even get an appeal. Now, when I said about the law changing in 2016, well, it isn't a law, it's a legal doctrine. It changed, 2016 said, the law has been misapplied for 32 years, right? So how many people do you think have been allowed an appeal and have been acquitted in, in those 32 years? How many people? Do you think anyone has? One. One person. One person. And that person doesn't even know why they were acquitted because they feel that they are far more guilty of what they did the day that someone died than most of the people that we support. So the reason they haven't, we haven't got to the Court of Appeal is because they want to block us. They don't want anyone to get out of prison. They don't want to deliver justice when it's the actual prosecutors and the judges that are sitting on the bench right now will have been the prosecutors of the past that did this to these people. They don't want them to get out. And one, what, my colleague Gloria spoke to one of the judges at the Supreme Court in a, in a conference a few years ago, Lord Tilson. Um, fortunately, he's now dead. But um, Lord Tilson, when she asked him, why don't you want these people to get out of prison? And he said, because the red top media will say we're letting murderers out. Well, they're not murderers, because you've just said in the Supreme Court that they didn't murder anyone. You know? So at the moment, the fight now is with, with the prosecutors, with the judges, and they put a, they put a clause in, in the, in the uh, judgment in the Supreme Court that said you have to prove that if you were convicted before 2016, you have to prove that you have been inflicted with a substantial injustice. Now, 25 years life sentence to me is, is a, for a crime you haven't committed is a substantial injustice. But what this clause actually means is that you, from your prison cell, have to prove that you are innocent before they let you go to the Court of Appeal. I thought it was the other way around. I thought you went to the Court of Appeal to prove that you were innocent. So that is a huge block that they've given to all the people we support. So at the moment, we're trying to fight um, to get what's called the Substantial Injustice Test uh, abolished. Because like you say, it's all about abolishing things. If it doesn't work, let's, you know, we can't fix it, abolish it. So anyone in here who wants to help the campaign or wants to help everyone that I support, you can write to your MP and say, I want you to support the Joint Enterprise of Pre Appeals Private Members Bill, the Criminal Appeals Private Members Bill. Um, because if we can get that through the House of Lords, we'll give all of these people the right to an appeal. And that's all they're asking for. They're not asking for the door to open and just let us out straight away. They want the right to an appeal so that they can prove their innocence in the Court of Appeal. So everyone in here can help us do that. Um, and the other thing that, that we're doing as a campaign as well, when I said about who prosecutes the prosecutors, well, Jemba's doing it. Um, we, 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 we wrote to, we, we, we're planning to sue them, we want to take them to court because we believe they're racist. 
We believe they target the disabled, yeah. they target oh, yeah. people because of their race. We believe they use a law that they know is wrong and unjust and immoral and unethical to lock people up. Now, at the moment, um, the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, they don't want to go to court. You know, it's a little bit different when they're trying to put us in court, but they don't want to go to court. So they're going to sit down and meet with us. I think they're just going to prolong the agony, you know, so that they, they, they don't have to give us what we want. But all we want, the only thing that we are asking, and it's really, really simple, is that they tell us how many black people they've put in prison, charged with joint enterprise murder, over the last 10 years, and they don't know. And I think it's quite telling that they don't know, because I think if they told us how many, we'd absolutely be horrified. Thank you. amazing organizing going on in Bristol so if anyone is from that area please link up with the with Lana down there and also we've got a chapter in Manchester with Angela and Zara and um, and Birmingham and we want we want more we want more local organizing because as much as school exclusion is something that in England at least right is applied um, there, there will be local context that have to be organized for and responded to locally by the people that are directly affected as you were saying earlier um, the, 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 the thing that maybe I can talk about very quickly that's, that we are trying to, because you've just talked about the campaign and what people can do, and you mentioned that too, so, and you did it, so it's only fair. So since Child Q, and I'm sure everybody's heard about Child Q, other horrifying cases have come out. So we know it's not just an isolated incident, uh, as they always want us to believe. Um, and actually, it wasn't even that uh, Child Q or her mum reported it. It was the fact that the GP that she, they went to to get mental health support reported it. And that to me speaks of a violence of normalization um, that, you know, as communities that are affected by these kinds of violence, whether it's done by police or teachers, it's normal to us. We don't even report it. We don't go anywhere because we're not expecting any help or support. We're not expecting anyone to investigate. And so that, that review, that safeguarding review that then led to us finding out about Child Q two years in arrears, because it had happened in November of 2020 and we only just found out in 2022. So they had been sitting on this information. Somebody's been sitting on this for, for quite some time. And how many more children were strip searched in and out of schools in that time and before that, right? Um, and then we had the children's commissioner um, who had the audacity to come out and say, and quote Child Q, quote Child Q words, and said, well, this child's not asking for any of these police to be prosecuted, right? Suddenly she's quoting abolitionist principles. <sighs> God give me strength, right? All of a sudden the children's commissioner is an abolitionist. We mustn't prosecute them. We must seek change, right? I mean, it's beggars belief how they take our language, our words, our trauma, and our pain, and use it against us time and again. Um, 
So around Chalky, what's happened since is that I want to highlight three things that have happened since. Really, lots of things really, but and and, and it happened in the in the in the borough of Hackney in East London, which has got oh, some, some of the worst history. Really difficult around there. I mean, parents have no choice. You've got these K-12 charter type schools that we call academies here. Uh, every single secondary school is an academy. Um, and I would rather take my child to another, <laughs> to home educate or anywhere that to send my child to an academy. Do not check send your children to academies, please, um, if you have a choice. But if you don't have a choice, and that's all you have in your local area, what do you do, right? Uh, they're completely unaccountable completely unaccountable to the local community and therefore profit and we've got parents actually from Hackney who have looked at the school to prison pipeline links and seen that there are links between the magistrate that are convicting the children after they've been excluded of course and put on the street and at risk talk about safeguarding um, they have interests um, in academies they're on the boards you know so the the information is out there so Three campaigns to get involved in. One is students not suspects. Please look that up. Second campaign is withdraw consent. Parents are told they have a choice, right? It's one of the, the lies. Like children have a choice, because they don't. And so when, when you join a school, you're asked to sign. You know these homeschool agreements? They're usually in the planner. They look really harmless, okay? Do not sign your child's life away. Look at that agreement and withdraw consent as necessary. And I just want to finish with a little personal story. My child um, is in year three, she's in juniors, uh, was really, um, if you think about it, she's seven. So about half of us, more than half of her schooling life has been disrupted, right, by COVID and not being in school or being in, on Google Classroom, which is another tool of surveillance, by the way, and punishment. And um, she's just recently moved up. So what they've done is the, um, they have reduced her playtime from two times a day she loses her playtime if she hasn't completed her classroom homework. Uh, if she hasn't filled in a reading journal every day, she misses playtime. And so suddenly, what's happened to her? Uh, she's gone from being someone who was really happy to go to school and really looking forward to catching up, which is what the government said we must be doing, to faking illness, being anxious, not wanting to go in, and telling me that every day the teacher puts the ranking of the homework on the screen, and she's at the bottom because she hasn't done her Google Classroom course homework or whatever. So when you talk about how is capitalism harming us and our mental health and our children, this is happening in real time on our watch. So if you're a parent, an auntie, a grandma, a granddad, uncle, neighbor, please can you look at these homeschool agreements? Please can you go and uh, take over governing bodies? Please can you go to assemblies? Please can you just be at the gates? And, 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 and seriously, because policing doesn't just happen with the uniform people. There is all kinds of ways that our children are being policed, punished, and surveilled. Thank you. So, um, we've got about 25 minutes left, and there are a couple more questions that I uh, had for the panel concerning um, abolition and like sort of connecting theory and practice and some myth busting but I feel like there's a possibility that questions around abolition could come from questions from the audience but let's let's see how it goes and um, hi guys um, that was absolutely incredible and um, brilliant contributions from all of you um, so I'm from Operation Withdrawal Consent and a podcast called Why I'm No Longer Talking to Institutionally Racist Police 
And we've got what I would call a toxic trio. We've got Suella Braverman, who's recently come out and saying that officers shouldn't spend any time on diversity training and should be out there doing real police work. We have Andy Cook, who's the Chief of Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, who used to be the Chief Constable in this city, who is the man behind the matrix in this city. And we have some of the and most notorious organised crime in the city. So a lot of the practices you see in London and other boroughs came from our city and he's now overwatching all of the policing in this land. He said when he came into post, about a month after Child Q, he came out with a second statement saying that the police should move away from kissing babies' heads and do a war on woke within the organisation. They specifically said that he wanted more officers in schools, which I just thought was intentionally gaslighting our communities. And we've now got Mark Rowley, and as much as I disagree with the Black Police Association, they do sometimes advocate a little bit on behalf of the community. He has hands down refused to meet with the Black Police Association. So we've got what I would consider a, a completely hostile and openly hostile leadership within UK policing. But they're not even playing games, they're not even pretending that they care about policing in schools or any of the things that our communities care about. And my question is, you know, a little bit of context text for this city in relation to how our children are treated. We had about a year ago a 10 year old boy who was kicked by a school's police officer. He had autism. He was dragged down the corridor by a police officer and he was seen trying to crawl away from a police officer in this city. The officer was dismissed, but I know for a fact that those attitudes that allowed that to happen have not been dismissed from the force. So, my question to you guys, you know, whoever wants to answer this is. How do we get these officers out of our schools when we've got a leadership who do not want it in any way, shape, or form? Yeah. Um, also, that kind of uh, we need to police woke, whatever. The head of Greater Manchester Police, his comments on Black Lives Matter and taking the knee and whatever we think of taking the knee as an approach to, to racism. But he was like, uh, the only people I kneel for are my wife and the queen. <laughs> so it's like, the shit some of these people say. It's like, oh, it's just awful. Or just cringe as well. Um, but yeah, how do we get police out of schools? So, I mean, it's, it's really difficult, I think. The reason we started asking questions and part of when I started a master's a few years ago I uh, interviewed her teachers and, and Andy Burnham at the time who didn't really know why he was letting him into his office and I think regrets it now. Um, but was to understand the narratives behind why and why they were doing it, right? Um, and, and how they were going to implement it as well. So they told us over and over and over that teachers want this. We're getting calls from teachers, and teachers want police in schools. That was one of the narratives. Uh, another was um, that this will not happen without consent of parents and young people. Police uh, Schools will only get a police officer if they want one, right? So those are like two examples of narratives that are there. So for the, for the teachers want this one, that's where the collaborative organising starts needing to happen, right? Part of our, we did an open call out for our first public meeting back in 2020 and teachers came to that, right? And very quickly, it became clear that, particularly not head teachers, right? Head teachers, different scope. 
concerning group of people, but teachers <laughs> didn't want this, you know? And, and black and brown teachers as well, they don't want, for, for personally, they don't want like, police in their schools. But mainly because they had higher ambitions for education than it becoming like a sphere of criminalization. So we started working with teachers, we started doing presentations on what we've been hearing and when we create this report, kind of trying to get that out to communities. We presented to like 500 teachers from the National Education Union and as I said before, started kind of working with the National Education Union and the Northwest Black Members Organising Forum, who were reps from the NEU in that area, to start putting out motions into those schools and, and trying to encourage teachers to come on board to say, we say no police in schools. So then when it came to media narrative, it was like, well, Andy Burnham can only so many times come out and say, teachers want this when we're passing a motion in borough after borough after borough, where actually the, those NEU affiliated teachers are saying, no, we don't. So that was an important thing, knowing, knowing the narrative behind it, um, and then working, trying to get a lot of information out to the school communities. So when we released this report, we also got it translated into all of the relevant languages from Manchester that were spoken as well. Um, and slowly we start to pick up parent organisers as well, which enables us to find out things like the fact that there's a school in one of our boroughs, Trafford, that recently had a police officer put in, and, and it happened within a week. No parents were ever spoken to about it, right? It just happened. So then you've got Andy Burnham and Beth Hughes, who also is in charge of the police force in Manchester, all over the news all the time, when we've been challenging them, saying, it won't happen without parental consent. And we can literally say, it is happening. Now, I'm not saying that these things are like, just get them out, but it's just calling bullshit all the time and working with those communities. And we push, 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 and push everyone kind of away from from politicians because to be honest they're not really going to do anything about it but on the ground and in the community and that is what led to a Manchester City Councilor saying we should draw this back especially when there's also other organising that brings to light some stories like Child Q and we hope to then replicate that in other boroughs it's really really hard and it takes it, take, it took us two years you know to get even that and we still don't know if they're out but I think the key kind of starting thing Maybe, and yeah, maybe this suggestion is basic, but it's trying to understand why they're doing it um, and kind of the ways in which they're going to do it uh, and what they think it's replacing and the kinds of questions, when we understood that, the kinds of questions that we asked in this report to the community is, if you could spend your money, the policing budget, on something for schools, what would it be? Mental health workers, so counsellors uh, and youth workers were the key thing that the community fed back to us. So when, again, when the GMCA is saying we're doing this to support the mental health of young people, one, there are people better trained to do that, counsellors, mental health workers, youth workers, and that is what parents want. So it's just trying to find out as deeply as possible their bullshit narratives behind it, and then doing everything you can to try and counteract that, and it's a long process, and I say you need we couldn't have done it just as a project as kids of colour with one like knowledge base. We needed teachers, we needed sexual health educators who came in and said when we deliver sex education classes in schools and there's a police officer there, we can't support young people because no young people want to disclose anything to us. Um, we know police officers are actually sharing misinformation around child sexual imagery laws and everything like that. So then again, when people in charge of police in schools are going, Oh yeah, they go in, they give these great educational lectures. You've got people from a whole different sector who are saying, 
that's not true. They're actually really like fucking up education, giving misinformation to young people and criminalizing them based on their misunderstanding of laws. So it's also bringing together lots of different people that as a project that is supporting young people racism, we would have never, not as in we're anti-working with sex educators, but we would never have thought of bringing them in until we did that open call out for lots of different people. As many people as you can understand that. One of the things that has been really good for Jemba, right, is because obviously we're just mums working from home most of the time. But one of the good things that for us to sort of um, has been research. Obviously, we, we do our own research, but we're not. Um, <clears throat> if you take that research to the government or, or, or to certain MPs, because we're just mums, it's not kind of like valid research, if you like. Even though everything we say is absolutely bang on. So if you've got, I mean, universities all over the country are looking for research projects, partly because they probably get 30 grand to do one. So give them a project, let them do the work for you. And then at the end of it, when they release their report, take it to the House of Commons and make a bloody great big deal about it. And then it's all over the press, it's on your local news, and you can be the one that stands there and say, I've done this. You know, that, that's, it, you've got to make it massive. Um, and you can and you can delegate a massive job to other people because there are other people out there who like massive jobs and they like academia and they like research and they'll do it all for you. Um, all right, hello. Uh, my name's um, Tracy Hilton. I'm 55 years old. I can't believe we're still here with this shit that was going on when I was in school in the 70s and 80s. And I worked in black community organisations um, 20 years ago. I'm now um, a black trade unionist. I'm on the um, National Executive Committee of my union, PCS, and Vice Chair of the National Black Members Committee. And I'm thinking of this, there's things going on in schools beyond what you, everything links. Now, Prevent is causing a lot of issues for teachers and for any child who isn't white. In fact, beyond that, there's some children who are migrant children who don't have um, who, who are white. And this is having an impact on how parents are actually, when they go into the establishment for, for support, or not because they're frightened that they're gonna be sent out of the country, that something's gonna happen because this links to Windrush and everything else. And we have black and brown teachers having to enforce that. And I want to know really, like on the trade union end, really what's happening um, about that. Because, you know, it, it's basically making people become the police within their job, and that is not what they're trained for. Um, sorry, I'll, I'll go on, I just I don't want to go on. There, there, there is um, you're good, you're good. Other, other, other linkages around, because obviously, because as has been said, we've now got the youth have had enough and they're organising, and that is putting themselves out on the field beyond the fact that just walking being black kind of puts them in, in that problem. You know, walking wait for a black being a taxi, walking black being in the shop, all of that. Now we've got them on the front line. And as organizers, as elders, we need to ensure that they are equipped to understand what to do when they, if something happens to them. 20 years ago, we were giving out cards to kids about being arrested, but there's so much change in the laws now with the killer bill and everything else, and to make sure that they're equipped with that. But the other thing that we did working in schools 20 years ago, which has all gone down, 
and had to be built back up again. Was that black presence within the schools about having black governors, about having organisations um, of, of black governors, about having those black sun Saturday schools um, that kind of are another place where kids can go and you know find out more to kind of, you know like to kind of get their esteem back, to get that learning and and to interact with people who are going to take notice and who are going to notice issues and bring that forward. What I'm seeing is black teachers leaving education in droves and and what's happened then is people who are placing them have got that white privilege lens and, and, and it's creating a problem, a problem and it's about the support for the people who are in there whether by the trade unions from the community or from families and parents organising Sorry, I could go on for a bit. I, I no, think yeah. you understand no, how it links. No, yeah, thank you so much. That's such an important thing. Because we haven't got long yeah, yeah. left. Can I just take, can, can I ask, get another two questions and maybe we answer the three, the three together. Is that okay? Hi, uh, mine's a really quick one. It's just, I wonder if you guys have got any thoughts on social care's use of secure beds and the use of the deprivation of liberty safeguards that they use against children that haven't committed criminal offences? Thank you, Mike. It's a broad question, really. Um, for 18 years, I worked for the police, and for five of those years, I was the chair of the Black Police Association, which is a support network for black and racial minority staff because staff were leaving in droves. So I challenged the racism within the organisation, and now I challenge it uh, from, from, from outside now that I've, uh, I've left the organisation. Um, one of the things I do is attend misconduct hearings and, and bring pressure to bear in, in other ways. Uh, and I, but I wonder what the future holds for policing because when people talk about defund policing, uh, but what do people actually want to see? I think we need something akin to or stronger than a Royal Commission, something that root and branch examines the police, establishes whether or not it's fit for purpose uh, with a view to changing it or even abolishing it completely or bringing it back in some other format. Uh, but certainly, it's a conversation where I want to hear. Uh, you want to hear about abolitionist futures? It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a question. We've got a question about I think structural racism in education. We've got a question about social care beds. Is that social care use of secure beds? So social care. Social care. Yeah. Social. So. Uh, it sounds like we're talking about um, social services as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, and then we've got a, quite a broader question about, I think, the transformative um, justice, about abolition in general, defund the police. Does, if you introduce yourself and then say, and me are going to contribute now. Woo! <laughs> female friends that have been doing jail time um, and thank God that I didn't protect but it was very very easy um, could have been done that I could have gone down that route and that's just down to anger I'm so angry I've been shaking I felt like throughout this whole weekend I've had that palpitation and I just think it's about time that we're just treating like humans um, I think it's horrible but going back to the social care setting um, I do work in residential care well, I did actually recently just there um, again and I totally understand what you're saying 
these young people, again, I say time and time again, um, behave as you that form of communication. So a lot of the time they're basically being criminalised on acting out and not looking at it from a perspective of poverty, from their parents going through sexual violence, from looking at it from a perspective of their parents neglected them. All these contributing factors are just cancelled and they looked at as criminalised. So again, I think in that perspective, I think the how I'm going to end it, because I want to be quick, is that it's just about time that we're just being treated as humans, and that's about it. And does anyone from the panel want to talk about abolition, abolition futures? I wanted to say a quick thing on unions, if yeah. that's all right. And What's your name, you sorry, that asked about the union question? Tracy. So I'll try and do it in two minutes, no, I, and then you yeah. come on. So, so what you were saying about, I can't believe we're still going yeah, through the motions, that's how we feel, this is where our anger is coming from. And as someone who's, I, I, I never trained to be a campaign, I'm a teacher, by a recovering teacher, I always say, one word, by the way. If you need to name me anywhere, Zara, recovering teacher, one word. Um, not former teacher, not ex-teacher, recovering, please, thank you very much. Um, and a trade union, the trade union is where I got my training to, uh, on how to organize and to campaign. So I am, I, I am so <sighs> critical, right, of how we've not really come anywhere far when it comes to policing because this campaign of Ethnopolis in schools around in the 80s in Hackney, for example, and here we are, 30, 35 years later, 40 years later, talking about the same thing, same borough, horrific story. So what happened with that campaign? Um, and also we've got, unfortunately, reformist takes and using moral panics such as, well, we need exclusions, for example, which we know disproportionately affect black boys, black girls, disabled children, so on, because <clears throat> sexual violence in school. So, well, when we know that less than 0.1% of exclusions are to do with sexual misconduct, not sexual abuse, I just want to be precise with words, sexual, some kind of sexual misconduct, which could be something as exchanging an image as a nude image. That could get you a sexual misconduct exclusion. That doesn't mean or you know, that you have raped anyone, right? So we've got these moral panics that are whip, whipped up by our trade union in particular. For example, that is blocked progress for us. When we've said no more exclusions, let's talk about abolitionist alternatives, not reforms. It can't be reformed. Police can't be reformed. Sorry. <laughs> Right? Because they serve a particular function within a capital, racial capitalist system. And that is to deal with the surplus. And who's in that surplus underclass? We're not talking the working class, because black people are not even allowed to be in the working class. We're an underclass. So therefore, we're not going to have any space for any reforms for policing or for exclusions. And the trade union women, it's about time they pull out their socks. I'll tell you, was that they, the, this is important for history. You have to all bear witness to this. We were at the annual conference in Bournemouth in April. It was absolutely disgusting. The executive came up with a motion that asked for reforms and new guidelines and training for police officers, how they can, you know, we can train the racism and the misogyny out of them, you know, because it cannot be done, because we've been so successful so far. Um, and, it was, and it was white women who were standing there talking to black uh, educators, the ones who are leaving in droves, Telling them, let's not adultify, like they're using the new terminology to just learn, adultification and calling child you a young lady. And we were like, 
It's a child. Oh, you're being disruptive. Excuse me. You're, you're using the, the exclusion language now against us? It's not going to work. So for us, the trade union, and it's, it was very touch and go. We managed to get the no policing school only just. It was almost 50-50, the vote. And it wasn't thanks to the National Executive, the National Education Union. I'm calling them out. I'm disgusted with them. Yeah? And they're using sexual violence in school as a, you know, as a moral, as a trope, as a very racist trope. We all know about Emmett Till. If you don't know about the history of Emmett Till, go and read it. This is a very old historical trope, right? Very effective. So it's about time, I think. I'm so angry with the trade union movement. And yet I stay in it. <laughs> because we have to be critical of the things that we love the most. Thank you very much. one point white folks we're either gonna block some shit or we're gonna be an important contribution to some shit right those white ladies those are my people we can organize them please come and get them exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's our job that's our job right there's a whole coalition that we need to be building and we can't leave white folks to just do what the fuck they do because guess what it's not working um okay just a couple of things and then i'm gonna pass it to you um Imagination is gonna be such an important part of, of even figuring out what comes next. And we can't do that unless we are with groups of people who are similarly committed and who are similarly connected to, organized, coordinated with those who are most fucking impacted. That's where we have to go. That's what we have to do. If we can't imagine what comes next, we have to make it in the process, yeah? And there are so many experiments that are working in many places so all you gotta do is just like find them. And if you're like, oh, I can't do that because what is gonna fucking replace this global system of policing? It's cool, because we're not trying to replace a global system of policing. We're trying to find solutions that take care of our people, that build stronger communities, that get us the power we need. It is not gonna look like what they have given us. It is not gonna look like that. So don't look for solutions that look like that because that's not what we want. That's a very generalized thing, I know. But it, believe me, it's out there. I wanna plug just a couple things and I'll pass the mic. Um, if you are looking to like get in on this thing called abolition, my two cents are to read black powerhouse women who have been on the fucking front edge of this work forever. And that, in my opinion, and feel free to chime in, is Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore. That is Angela Davis, Dr. Angela Davis. That is my mentor and fucking um, changed my life person, Rachel Herzing Woo! of Critical Resistance, Mariam Makaba, and Andrea Ritchie. And Woo! the last two names I just put out, they just came out with a book called No, no More Police. Police. And they have all of the politics and all of the experimentation and all of the lessons that we can take and then translate to our context. It's not gonna be a cookie cutter, please don't try to make it. And the last thing is, I wrote a book called Beyond Policing, and it's about defund in Europe. So I know the US is like, yeah, we got lots of stuff, and you're like, how does that work over here? There are people that are doing it, and this is just an experimentation of like where people are at with defund in the European context. So it's free, the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, or Foundation, you can download it, the book is free, they ran out, but like, Talk to folks. Okay. Yeah.
Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't even want to think about replacing a police force specifically, right? When we, when people say uh, reform police, reform to what? Because in America, they replaced slave patrols. In the UK, uh, they learned their policing from military occupation in Ireland and other colonies, right? So it's always been a racist endeavor. There's nothing positive to reform the police to. It's always been their intention. Um, so I don't want to engage in like, how can we make that better? Because I don't want to think about how we do a better racism. Um, so for me, an abolition is exactly what Hillary is just reflecting on. It's like, it's this beautiful opportunity to imagine what we can have based on what is actually needed in society. We've got to remember, and someone walked into the room as we were talking earlier, who does fantastic work, look up Cradle Community and Community Action Against Prison Expansion. Um, who speaks abolition in a way much better than I can, but um, it's about looking at those institutions like prison. When we look at prison, we've got people who have experienced domestic violence. I think it's like a third of people in prison have been through the care system. Yeah. Uh, however many have been excluded, you know, living in poverty, all of these things. Making that better is not done by a better police force. It's done by actually building the infrastructures that we need in, in the community. And I'll give, try and give a, a tangible example. Although it didn't work to the ends that we wanted, it's an example of how we just get people thinking. And then I'll end on that. In the case of the Manchester 10, the 10 boys that were sent to prison on conspiracy charges that I mentioned earlier, um, that was following the loss of a friend, that one person committed harm against someone else. They were going through a significant amount of grief, all 10 were, and that's really how they were pulled in, although in the courtroom it wasn't constructed as grief, it was constructed as gang affiliation and gang activity. But they were experiencing grief. One of the boys was a victim of kind of exploitation following the fact that he was excluded and because he was homeless. Okay, and there are, there are a myriad of issues that I can speak to that, that many of these young boys have faced, right? They, didn't, they don't need to be in prison, they need those issues to be solved. So when it came to sentencing, we'd spoken, we'd spoken to abolition throughout this, right? Not necessarily explicitly in that language, but saying that there were other things these boys were dealing with at the time, that, needs that were never met. Very early on, after two boys lost their friend, they tried to chase someone at school. Nothing bad happened, but they were excluded, right? There were failures that led to the point of harm in these cases. We pushed out the messaging continuously that these boys did not need to go to prison, they needed other things. We opened up a survey to community of Greater Manchester and said, if we could have these boys in our community on suspended sentences, what do you have to give to them to support them as young people that we can then put in front of the judge and the prosecutors and give to all the defence teams to say, you actually don't need to put them in prison because X, Y, Z is being offered. We have over 500 people contribute to that survey. The survey probably took like 10 or 15 minutes as well. So that's quite a significant amount of time for people to contribute to. It's not just like a, a petition, right? And within that, you can see it online, the contributions I actually find really emotional because what they share is, yes, you can come to my woodwork uh, class once a week. I'll give you a call once a week to see if you're okay. I'll financially contribute to you. I'm a counsellor. I'll give you a counselling session on grief once a week. I will support your family in X, Y, Z, right? And there were all, all of these things that actually, when you look at them as a, as a whole, they dealt with all of the issues that existed pre-harm. 
pre-harm and actually also were nothing to do with the harm, right? Just supporting young people. We got that in the courtroom and actually, you know, it, whether it had an impact on the length of sentences, I don't know, but to see defence barristers stand up and, and even though they didn't necessarily really want to say, actually, we're going to call for a suspended sentence and the judge be like, what, what the fuck? Like, absolutely not. But it was challenging that discourse and that narrative in the courtroom. And apparently the sentences they got were less harsh, right? They got eight to 21 years, okay? But what I'm saying is there was a group of people there willing and ready, and that made it and cut through the discourse into the courtroom that actually the British public just want punishment and they just want people in prison. And I don't think that's true. I think everyone has something to give that they want to give as part of abolition. That didn't work in, in there, right? They didn't get suspended sentences. But what we have now is a huge community of people that we're ready to do healing-centered organizing with. Um, and then we're ready to build off and start talking about how we can intercept these harms, what we do when a young person is killed in our community, or whatever, whatever the challenge might be, right? So it's just looking at the actual scenarios in our communities and being like, well, what was actually needed in that, in that, in that moment? And it was never policing. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 